uh, a beautiful passage on the grace of God. So why don't we just pray for a moment, um, and then we will get going. Father, thank you for your spirit here, and we pray that you would speak right into each of our lives, wherever we may be at this morning, that we would know that we've met with you, that we'd hear your voice and have the courage to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a series at the moment called Encounters with Jesus, where we're going through um, an eclectic group of stories of people who had met with Jesus from different backgrounds, uh, different ends of the social spectrum of the day, uh, and they'd met with Jesus and had their lives transformed through an encounter with his love. And the beautiful thing about these stories is that they tell us what God is like and how he works in our lives today. So the claim is that in the face of Jesus, we see the heart of God. In the face of Jesus, we see the heart of God. And this is really important for us because we pick up all sorts of wrong ideas about God as we go through life that impact us profoundly. Uh, they impact how we feel about ourselves. Uh, they impact how we treat others, uh, how we view the world. A.W. Tozer, uh, the writer and uh, thinker, said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, a friend of mine uh, called Jenny uh, grew up in uh, a cult. I've told this story before. I've talked about Jenny before. But she grew up in a cult, uh, and she grew up in an environment that was unsurprisingly deeply restrictive. Uh, she lived in fear. Uh, she was con constantly made to feel guilty and ashamed because of the environment that she lived in. She was born into this family who were in this cult. And so as she grew up, she wanted to escape from that. She rejected religion completely, understandably. And because of her experiences, she turned her heart off God and faith and anything like that. And she was a teacher at a school, and a colleague invited her along to uh, an alpha course. She came along to church um, a couple of times just to check it out. And she saw it was quite a gentle and open environment. She decided to come along to Alpha. And I remember our first conversations over dinner at Alpha, a course about exploring life and faith. And I remember thinking she was very closed off. She, was, she didn't really want to open up much about herself, unsurprisingly. And she was very closed off, really, to the idea of having anything to do with religion. But as she went through that course, gradually she began to open up to the person of Jesus. And she encountered Jesus. She didn't encounter religion. She didn't encounter church. But she encountered Jesus. And she experienced the grace of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus and the peace of Jesus and the freedom that Jesus brings. And what came about in her life was beautiful. And as she gave her life to Christ and we saw transformation in her life, what we saw come through was those fruits of the Spirit that Jesus brings as she began to reflect him in her life. Love, joy, peace, and freedom. And it all came through meeting Jesus. Friends, Jesus is beautiful. 
And when we really see what God is like, the heart of God in the face of Jesus, then we become our true selves. But we experience uh, all sorts of things in life which inform a wrong view about God. It might be uh, an experience of religion as a child, just like my friend Jenny had. It might not necessarily be that we grew up in a cult, but maybe we grew up in an environment which, as we reflect, wasn't particularly helpful. Uh, Maybe you went to a religious school, and our image of God was of an overbearing headmaster, and that has remained with us. And so perhaps we get ideas that God might be a little bit disappointed, or he's just looking at us saying, could try harder. Or or maybe we've just generally had negative experiences of authority figures in our lives, parents, teachers, bosses at work, and we've transferred that onto our image of God. Or it could be that actually through the challenges of everyday life, that, that belief that God loves us, that he's for us, gradually gets chipped away. How can God really be for me if my partner splits up with me? My life now feels like a mess. I've got all this to deal with. How can God really be for me if my mum's got cancer? How can God really be for me when my work life is like this or I'm unemployed or I'm struggling in this way? We look around the world. How can God really be for me? How can God really be good and gracious and kind and loving when there's war in Ukraine? The list goes on. And it impacts how we feel about ourselves, our sense of self-esteem, how we view the world, how we treat others. And the claim of John's gospel is that we don't look to our circumstances. We don't ultimately look to our past or our circumstances. We look to Jesus because it's in the face of Jesus that we see the heart of God. And stopping and playing spot the difference from time to time, is a really good thing to do. In John 1, verse 18, John sets up his gospel in this way and says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So today we're looking at this beautiful story of an encounter between Jesus and a woman caught in adultery, but it's also a story of Jesus and some religious leaders of the day, some Pharisees. And I love this story because it shows us the heart of God and what the heart of God looks like played out in the messy, gritty reality of everyday life, not the squeaky clean fake lives that we might feel like we need to bring to church, but the reality of life with adultery and mess and our brokenness, and we see what the heart of God looks like played out in real life. I love it. And it's a story that the early church thought was too good to miss out too. So you might notice if you've um, got a, a Bible open in front of you, it says the earliest manuscripts don't have this story in John's Gospel. But the early church thought this story is too good We can't not have it in the Bible, so they put it in. I just love that. But the context is that the Pharisees are getting angry with Jesus. Jesus has been ministering for some time. He's been performing miracles. You've just had the feeding of the 5,000, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus says, Let all who are thirsty come to me, and rivers of living water will stream from you. 
And John says that was the Holy Spirit who was to be given to all those who believe. So Jesus is performing miracles. Crowds are gathering. People are loving what Jesus is doing. It's completely different to the religious leaders of the day and the Pharisees and what they were teaching. Jesus is then making some really radical claims about himself. In John's gospel, he keeps telling us that he is one with the Father. That was blasphemy. And so he's now beginning to offend people. So you've got some people who love Jesus. You've got some people who are deeply offended by Jesus. And so the Pharisees decide to set up a trap. And that's what we have in the first six verses, really, of this story. So we're told in verse 2 that at dawn it was the morning. And Jesus, uh, sorry, at dawn in the morning, Jesus in the temple courts and a crowd has gathered round. They're ready to hear him teach. He, start, he sits down. It was a sign of a rabbi that he's going to begin his teaching. And then in verse 3, it says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. These men, these Pharisees, had grabbed a woman, dragged her into the center of town, in Jerusalem, by the temple. Crowds are there. She's humiliated. She's chucked before Jesus. And it's striking that we're told the woman was caught in the act of adultery. Just think about that for a moment. How do you catch someone in the act of adultery? How did the Pharisees know the woman was committing adultery? You had to be pretty near to the scene. Jewish law says there has to be three witnesses present to testify that a law had been broken. So at least three of these men had, must have been waiting around the bedroom that this act took place. How did they know that this woman was committing adultery? Maybe they had a tip-off. Maybe the man involved in the adulterous relationship had tipped them off a fee. However it played out, it is creepy and it is humiliating for the woman. And let's just pause for a moment. So this woman is brought before Jesus, but a question to ask is, where is the man? I don't know if you've ever wondered that. Where is the man? Because Jewish law says that actually both the man and the woman should be punished. And of course it reflects the sexist and misogynistic culture of first century Palestine at the time. Women were treated as second-class citizens. Uh, women weren't able to continue an education. They weren't able to really have a job or engage in politics. The role was in the home, and everything that they had was associated with a man, whether that was their husband or a father. And in many ways, they were treated as property rather than people. But when you see the way that Jesus honored and treated women, in this story and in many others, there's a marked contrast. Jesus was constantly smashing down the cultural customs of the time in the way that he spent time with women. He got close to women. He treated them as equal to men. He treated them as people made in the image of God and not property. Uh, we see that throughout the Gospels, the story of the Samaritan woman, the story of the woman who poured perfume on his feet, Mary Magdalene, the female disciples. And so sometimes you hear claims that Christianity is sexist or misogynistic. The church has certainly been that in the past, but when you look to Jesus, 
you see something very different. So this trap had been set. They'd hidden. They'd caught this adulterous couple having sex. Uh, at some point, either in the moment or they waited till the morning, they grabbed the woman. They then dragged her into the center of town. They pushed her in front of Jesus and they presented Jesus with this question in verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they think they've got him. If Jesus starts to, to uphold the law as they think he, that he should, then he'll lose the popularity of the crowd. So if he doesn't uphold the law, then he is being found out as a false rabbi. But what we see in Jesus' response is both beautiful and brilliant. And I just want to pick up two things that show us something about the heart of God from this story. And the first is this, the heart of God against a judgmental spirit. So this encounter for the Pharisees was really like a mirror on their hearts, a mirror of what was really going on for them in their lives. So we're told that Jesus bends down and he starts to write in the sand in front of everybody, in front of the crowds. What is that about? What is Jesus doing? Well, Jeremiah 17 verse 13 gives us a little bit of a clue. Uh, it says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, or you might say the sand, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. The irony is that as the Pharisees come and they're condemning the woman, Jesus is actually turning the tables and saying, there's a bigger thing going on that you're completely missing. Here I am, the Messiah, come to, get, come to bring those rivers of living water, come to bring eternal life, and you're rejecting me. You're missing out on me. So in the end, you will be the one who is condemned. You'll be the one that is missing out. Their own sense of pride, of arrogance, of self-righteousness has stopped them seeing clearly, has stopped them seeing what is truly important, that Jesus the Messiah is here and that they need to receive him. But they don't get that gesture at all. They don't understand what's going on. So we're told that the Pharisees keep asking him the same question as Jesus is writing in the sand, what do you say we should do? So Jesus gives them a line which makes things really obvious. A famous line, whoever has never sinned, throw the first stone. And in that one line, maybe they began to get a glimpse. Maybe they began to see the judgmental spirit and ugliness within their own hearts. They began to see that perhaps they weren't as good as they thought they were. And they walk away, the oldest setting the lead and then the youngest following. And you know, we need to hear those words too. Jesus is saying here, do not judge. Do not judge. It's the Sermon on the Mount but lived out in life, in example, in reality. We are all in the same boat. No one is perfect. No one has the right to judge others. The only person that had the right to judge in that context was Jesus himself. He was the only one that had never sinned, and yet he didn't. 
he chose to bear the cost of that sin upon himself, ultimately upon the cross. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, and all are justified by grace through Jesus. Now, Christian thinkers have historically distinguished between two types of sin, uh, sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit. Now, sins of the flesh are kind of like external things. They're the obvious sins that we might think of, the sins that get the tabloid headlines in the mirror or papers like that. Sins like greed or lust, adultery and promiscuous sex, drunkenness, laziness, gambling, that sort of thing. And they're often things that we run into to kind of heal pain in our lives or to numb pain or to fill some sort of tank to, to want to, to live or to, to, to feel love. So those are the sins of the flesh. And then there's sins of the spirit. And these are kind of more subtle sins, kind of sins of the soul, more unseen. And they're sins like pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and judgmentalism. And the thing is, the church all too often is scandalized by the sins of the flesh. But what was Jesus most scandalized by? When did he get most angry? It's the sins of the Spirit. Jesus is interested in our, our hearts. And when we're guilty of sins of the flesh, it was often those who were guilty of sins of the flesh that were the disciples of Jesus that spent time with Jesus that most readily received Jesus. Why? Because they knew their need. They knew that they had messed up. That They knew that they were looking for something more. They knew that they needed a doctor, and Jesus was the doctor. So they, Jesus comes along and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And they say, yes, I'll have some of that. And so they come to Jesus. But those who are guilty of sins of the Spirit, it's like a wall in their hearts. It's very difficult to penetrate where there's judgment or arrogance or pride or self-sufficiency. But this is how C.S. Lewis put it. If we could just have the quote on the screen. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing or patronizing, the pleasure of power or hatred. And that is why a cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer hell than a prostitute. Now, the thing is, we all hold stones of judgment, whether in church, we might look at others and think, oh, I wouldn't do things like they do things, or they're wearing that, are they? Or they're, they're behaving in this way, or in our office or work, in our family, on social media. So often our, the culture of social media is a culture of judgment where we can be anonymous and then all too easily put up a tweet judging others. We don't even know their story. And so it's so much a fabric of our culture. But Jesus asks us to live differently, to reflect the heart of God as seen in Jesus John 3:17 For God did not send his son into the world to condemn but to save the world. God's heart is never to judge, it's never to condemn. Because he's a God of mercy 
and grace. And so I wonder for us, what thoughts of judgment might we have been harboring in our hearts? Who's that person, if we're honest, that we find it hard to forgive, to think with, think on with grace? Do we need to repent this morning of a judgmental spirit? And the thing that I find really difficult but helpful with this is if you've got a person in your mind who you find it very easy to judge, let's be honest, I do, we all do, pray a prayer of blessing on them. Pray a prayer of blessing on them. Pray that God would go above and beyond their wildest hopes and dreams in the way that he blesses them. And as we do that, we release uh, God's blessing and and we find a sense of healing ourselves. God's heart is against judgmental spirit. And then secondly, God's heart is for us to receive and walk forward in his grace. And this is really the story of the woman. Now just imagine for a moment what that experience must have been like for her as she was caught so vulnerable in this most uh, intimate act, in this most intimate Um, relationship, this person she'd given herself to, maybe had tricked her. Imagine uh, her heart rate as the Pharisees, those religious leaders, come out and grab her. Imagine her emotions, her thoughts and feelings as she's taken to the center of Jerusalem, in front of the crowd. She's humiliated in a shame and honor culture. Everyone knows that she's committed adultery. Her life is really on the line. She thinks she's going to die. And then she's taken to this rabbi. Maybe she's, she's heard of Jesus. Maybe she hasn't. Maybe she thinks that Jesus is just like every other man that she's ever known is going to condemn her, and this is going to be it. And the Pharisees say, should we stone this woman? They're very happy for her to be used as collateral damage in their plans. And Jesus bends down, and maybe the woman thinks that he's looking for a stone. And then she hears these words, whoever has never sinned, throw the first stone. And maybe she hears the thud, thud, thud as those religious leaders drop their stones and begin to walk away and her heart rate begins to cool. And it's just Jesus and it's her. He's just saved her life. And then she hears these words, these beautiful words, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus in that moment has literally got rid of condemnation. Someone who's probably felt condemned and guilty and ashamed her whole life, Jesus has suddenly got rid of that. No one's there pointing fingers. And she says, no one, sir. Jesus says, so I don't condemn you. The heart of God is always grace. Whatever we have done, there is nothing we can do to make God love us anymore. There's nothing we can do to make God love us any less. It's all grace from start to finish. The most repeated phrase in the entire Bible, Old Testament and New, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And then Jesus ends with this little line, now go and leave your life of sin, verse 11. He's not saying that sin doesn't matter. It's not a... um, a kind of uh, modern view of sin that we might have in our culture, that sin doesn't really exist. 
Uh, sin is just something that's actually quite good, naughty but nice. If we have too much ice cream, we sin. It's not that kind of view of sin. Sin matters, but I've dealt with it on the cross, and I've risen again, so now you can go and you can dif- live a different life. It's not a view of sin, which is cheap, that you can keep on doing what you want to do, but it's an invitation to live differently, to receive forgiveness, and to go and live in a way where your tank is not filled through an adulterous relationship, but your tank is filled through my love. What is God saying to us today about his grace? And I guess it leaves us with a question, did she? We don't know the end of the story. Did she go and leave her life of sin? Did she go and live differently? I think she did. And the reason is because when we have an encounter with the grace of God, we can't help but be transformed. We can't help but leave different because it does something to our hearts. When our hearts are moved, everything else follows. And I think this morning God wants us to remind us, or even maybe for the first time, to understand, to realize of his, to receive his grace afresh, his generosity and his grace, and to walk in a way of grace, free from condemnation, free from shame, but knowing his love and new purposes in our lives. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. So just two things from this little story to take away. The heart of God against a judgmental spirit and the heart of God to receive and walk in grace. Amen.